Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Mark Briggs about the need to change the way we change at work. Mark Briggs, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us outside of Seattle. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And uh, as we're we were chatting in the pre-interview, I, I was explaining, uh, you know, we got dumped on with a bunch of snow. So today's a snow day for my kids. They're at home. And so that means I'm at home and uh, doing this podcast from the corner of my bedroom it's like COVID at the beginning of COVID times all over again. It's exciting. Um, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to to talk with you today, Mark. I know you're an avid skier, so you can appreciate the snow. Um, today, we're going to be focusing on the need to change the way we change, uh, specifically within the workplace, but really in general, uh, as it relates to life also. I think we're not very good at change, and uh, there's there's nothing more certain in life than change. So we need to figure out how to do it better and change the way we change. We're going to unpack that in part as we discuss Mark's recent book, um, but also just some of the other related um, elements to that. As we get started, I wanted to share Mark's bio with everybody. Mark Briggs is a management consultant who helps Fortune 500 companies modernize their operations, culture, and leadership by facilitating cutting-edge transformations. He is also a speaker, trainer, and consultant in digital transformation and innovation. Since 2006, Mark has worked with groups across the United States, Europe, China, and the Middle East. He is the author of three books and a professor of leadership and change management at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. What a wonderful background. I can also say that uh, the scholar practitioner orientation that you have definitely resonates with me. Um, I'm not at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, which is a, a wonderful university, um, but I am a professor of organizational leadership and change at Utah Valley University, um, south of Salt Lake City and do the consulting stuff as well. And, and so uh, I think we're probably two peas in a pod as it relates to uh, the type of work that we do. Um, anything else about yourself, Mark, that you would like to share with listeners before we launch on into the conversation? No, I think you summed it up pretty well, John. I think it is a great topic for us to dive into because change uh, really has been, I guess, the guiding light, sort of the North Star of my entire career, whether it was writing books about digital journalism 15 years ago and entrepreneurial journalism and teaching courses about leading change in, in media organizations. And then with my current work as a consultant with Smith Geiger, I work with big media companies and TV stations on how to integrate change and modernize operations. And so the through line through really everything I've done goes back to a Benjamin Franklin quote that I have in my new book, which is simply that change is inevitable and progress is optional. And so since we know change is going to happen, let's make the most of it. Yeah, I love that quote. 
Um, and, and since you just mentioned your new book, why don't we start there and just explain for the listeners, um, you know, what your new book is all about, really the, the impetus for it. Uh, and then we can start to unpack this, this need to change the way we change. Yeah, sure. The book is called The Butterfly Impact, which is obviously adjacent to uh, a phenomenon that is a little bit more famous, which is the butterfly effect. And that really tells us that small changes can have a, a large effect, a ripple effect downstream. But with the butterfly effect, it's part of chaos theory. So it's not something you can necessarily control. And when I was putting together this book, which compiles a lot of research that I've done, a lot of uh, sort of practical tips and applications uh, in pursuit of work-life balance and just making the most of the days that we have in front of us, and then interviewing more than 100 people to find out what their best practices were in this realm, I realized that what it is really is a series of small changes. And so the way I like to describe the butterfly impact is it's really choosing to have a ripple effect and a positive effect on the people in your world, both at work and at home. And the way you get to that is by making these small changes so that you're spending your time in ways that are helpful to you and add value to what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to bring to the table, whether it is at work or at home. And so, I, like I said, I interviewed more than 100 people, gathered together the best uh, advice and tips that I could. But like I say, there's no one owner's manual for everybody. So what's in the book is far more than any per one person could ever take on. So it's really more of a buffet and, and trying to pick the, the applications, the tips, the tricks, the hacks that make the most sense in your life and your current situation. Yeah, and I appreciate the acknowledgement of um, the fact that there's not a one-size-fits-all, right? We're all unique individuals with unique circumstances and a unique context. And because of that, that means while there are some underlying principles that are going to hold uh, fairly consistent uh, across time, uh, it, it is different. And so it, it's the same thing when I go into organizations as a consultant. You know, I, I may have already done a very similar project with uh, with another organization, similar profile, similar, you know, same industry, similar size, like all those things that you check the box of all these things that are similar. And you know what, if I try to go in and do the exact same things I did at the last organization, it's probably going to fail <laughs> um, for a variety of reasons. But part of it is just the fact that the, the nuance and the complexity of all the variables at play, even when you think there's a lot of similarities, there's going to still be a lot of differences. And so whether we're talking about individual change, uh, we're each unique individuals or organizational change. We each are part of unique organizations with unique cultures and contexts. We need to keep that in mind. Um, but like you said, there are underlying principles and there are um, hacks and, and various things that, that you can try out and see if it fits, see if it works for you and for your team, for your organization. If it doesn't, let it go. Don't worry about it. Uh, if it does, great. And you can start to really embrace it and, and move it into more of a sustainability kind of a, a role within how you, you run your, your team or your organization. Yeah, absolutely. And you asked about the, the impetus for the book, which definitely is under this umbrella of change. And it came about in March of 2020 uh, because of the pandemic. And what had happened in my personal uh, sort of career and trying to help these media companies and TV stations embrace change and make the most of change prior to the pandemic. You know, obviously, technology and digital media has done a number of 
disruptive things to um, traditional media and local TV news, which is where I work. And for three and a half years prior to the pandemic, I had been helping uh, a set of clients with a modernization project where we really took apart the entire organization and tried to put it back together in a way that made sense for this era and for the technology and for the audiences that we had on social media, on mobile, on streaming. And so that process really forced us to embrace change and it forced the organization and the leadership to embrace change and teach change and lead change. And so when we got to the pandemic, uh, we were a much more adaptable group and that paid dividends as soon as obviously quarantine hit and everything that impacted our world so greatly. The one piece though that we hadn't sorted out and, and I don't think any organization had at this time was the change that people were forced to deal with in their personal lives and especially the work from home people, especially the people who worked from home and had young children or had homeschooling or the people who worked from home and didn't have anybody and all of a sudden were feeling isolated. So there was a lot of those kinds of changes that we didn't really anticipate. So I started writing some basically essays for the executives at these organizations to try to help them coach their individuals through this work-life blending that we were all suddenly faced with. Because it's one thing to have a great strategy at work, but if the people showing up to execute it are completely burnt out, stressed out, dealing with anxiety and everything else, you're not going to go very far. Yeah. And I love uh, how you phrase it, work-life blending. You know, there's, there's lots of literature out there on work-life balance. Some call it work-life integration. I like this idea of work-life blending. Uh, ultimately, you know, whatever the, the, the term we, we decide on to use, the, the general concepts are the same. And, and that is, you know, we, we live in a messy world with messy lives where we, it's, for most people, it's not easily, there's not an easy demarcation between all these different aspects of our life and the roles that we have. It all bleeds together. It all blends together. Um, and so that certainly means that work tends to, to uh, move into the personal realm. And we, we've seen this over the course of the pandemic, and there's been lots of um, articles and such on the fact that people are working more longer hours when they're working from home, just because it's convenient and they're there and they're not commuting and they can work all hours. And, you know, so all of a sudden it just bleeds, bleeds, bleeds over into your personal life if you don't set up boundaries. Um, but the, the other aspect is true too. And that is the fact that we, we can't get away from, the personal lives of our people and how it's going to come into the workplace. Uh, organizations may say, you know, check yourself at the door, be professional, whatever the colloquialism is of the day to try to say, you know, leave all your personal stuff and your baggage at home, just come to work and, and do your work. That's just not the way it's going to work. And it's not sustainable. People have messy lives. And if they have stress, anxiety, depression, um, loneliness, those sorts of things. And then they don't have a way to, uh, to have fulfillment in the work that they do. It, it's going to go both ways. So you're absolutely right. And we need to look at that blending and organizational leaders need to think about, you know, really how do we better support our people um, emotionally, socially, culturally, uh, all in all of the ways. Uh, and it's not just enough to just focus on performance. Absolutely. And getting back to the, topic of change, you know, again, change is forced upon us when we hit March of 2020, you know, all of us had to deal with some sort of change. 
how do you take advantage of that change? And, uh, you know, one of the famous, you know, topics that or quotes that I use in the book is don't waste a good crisis. And that was an opportunity for organizations, but also individuals. Um, you know, organizations, I think, have done a, a fairly good job from where I sit in terms of helping people uh, find some work-life blending, you know, allowing, you know, a kid to interrupt a Zoom call, allowing someone to do a call from a car, or, you know, just allowing that flexibility and that blending of work and life, understanding that as you're working from home, you're going to have things that you can't control like you could in the office. Um, and then really recognizing those boundaries that you mentioned and really giving people appreciation for taking a lunch break or not taking a meeting after five o'clock or doing those things that we have to not only say are important, but really leaders need to step up and start doing them. And in a lot of the recent uh, conversations around my book, around this material with clients, that's what it really comes down to is leaders who see their staffs are burnt out and stressed out. And they're, they're saying the right things. They're saying, you know, have boundaries. They're saying, take a lunch break, but they're not doing it themselves. So what happens is you have, you know, the team looking at the leader and they're just modeling the behavior that they see, which, you know, we've all known that's how organizations work. And in this era, it's just that much more important to not try to burn the candle at both ends, put in the most hours. You know, it's how productive and how effective are you in your job? That's what really needs to happen. And I think, at least from where I sit, the, the best part of the pandemic, one of the silver linings is that we got rid of, quote unquote, optics, which I hate. And I've always hated in organizations that do you look important? Do you look busy? That doesn't matter. You know, what are you bringing to the table? How are you moving? Yeah, and, and are you making an impact? Like, let's really figure out who's valuable here and how they're adding value, not who's warming a chair for 12 hours a day. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Exactly. That's And that's always been one of my pet peeves as well. Going all the way back, I, uh, years and years ago, this was probably 20 years ago, uh, I was working um, in the corporate organizational development office at LG Electronics in South Korea. Now, the, the work culture in Korea, as it is in many Asian countries, 
you know, is people put in really long hours. They show up early, they stay really late. And then even after the work is done, then they go out to a bar, sing karaoke, whatever. And you're just expected to be there, right? And it doesn't really have anything to do with the work that you have to do. You just need to be there as long as the boss is there and you're expected to put in the long hours. And I remember at the time just thinking, oh, this was just so dumb. And part of it was just probably my Western, you know, mindset and arrogance and of a young kid and whatnot. Um, but but through that experience and then moving on throughout life, I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen it just as much in U.S. companies as I experienced in Korea, um, that that there's this idea of FaceTime, that I just need to look important. I need to look busy. I need to put in FaceTime so that important people see me at optimal periods so that they think I'm doing the work. And it really has almost nothing to do often with the actual productivity and the performance of the individual. Sometimes you have amazingly high-performing individuals who may not have all the face time or they don't care about the optics, so they don't put all the time into playing those games. And you know what? They, they end up suffering because of it. And then other people get promotions or whatever, even if they're not the best suited. And so those types of things are silly. I completely agree. I think the, the, uh, the pandemic kind of blew that up a little bit and forced us to take a second look at that. But I have to say, I, I've, as, as people have started moving back to a physical workplace, uh, I've heard many leaders start to talk about the need for everyone to be back in the office and the need to be able to walk around the office and monitor people and, and it, you know, getting back to the old mentality. And I'm like, oh, man, did we not learn anything over the last two years? <laughs> okay. um, let's set that aside and move on. Yeah, I, this return to the way it was it is really the the last thing we need to do right now. I think, and then we were talking earlier about change, and then I, I, I we talked about the organizational change, but personal change that was forced upon us with the pandemic, especially those who had to work from home, and they we were forced to figure out work life blending, and we were forced to figure out how to take care of ourselves when work can always be there. How do we set boundaries? How do we make sure? We're taking time for ourselves, but also putting time in for the things that we value the most, which is probably like family and fitness and, you know, hobbies and interests. And for a lot of folks who could now work, you know, all day, every day, every hour of the day, it took a lot more discipline. And I've worked with a lot of folks and I've had a lot of conversations with people around the book and to say that one of the best things they learned was to put everything on their calendar because that's what they value. So even something as simple as family dinner. I, I have several people that I interviewed for the book or have worked with as clients who had to start putting family dinner on their calendar in order to have that stop and transition and go do that. And then if you need to come back to your emails at eight or nine o'clock, you know, okay, but at least you got the family dinner in. Because what I was seeing from people is they were just blowing through six, seven o'clock at night, continuing because there's always something in your inbox. And then they felt so crappy for missing family dinner and for not spending time with their children. And they carried that around with them to the next day. And so it just becomes this horrible snowball effect. And then you feel behind and, and it just, it leads to a really unhealthy sense of well-being. So whether it's a lunch break, a walk, uh, family dinner, yoga, you know, whatever it is, once you put it on your calendar, you can make it happen. And so I tell people, go as far out on your calendar as you have to, four weeks, six weeks, whatever it is. Eventually, there's white space. And put the big rocks in, to use Stephen Covey's term, of what you really know will make you healthy that week. 
And then when you get to that week and people ask you for a meeting, that time will be blocked off on your calendar. And you can just find a different time for that conversation. Because guess what? There's other hours in the day and it'll still happen and the world will not end, but you'll be more healthy and be more capable, more productive and more effective in everything you do, both at work and at home. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, so there's a couple other things I really want to dig into. Um, the first is really just if you have any thoughts on um, really specifically what we can do to change our, our attitude and our mindset towards change. So changing the way we change. Um, we've already talked about how ubiquitous that is, that like everyone's changing all the time, or at least we should be trying to, to change and lean into change, uh, but we just do it so poorly. Um, so what are some of the things that we can start to do both in our personal lives and in the workplace with our teams to start to have a healthier approach to the way we approach change? I would highly recommend everyone embrace the concept of play. And when I talk about play in the book, I have a whole chapter on it. Uh, it's not about having a foosball table at the office. It's about this idea of experimentation, trying new things, and learning. And there's a fantastic book by Lindsay McGregor and Neil Doshi called Prime to Perform. And they did a ton of research with huge organizations around the world and found that the most adaptable and highest performing teams were the ones who embraced this concept of play or what they call total motivation. So if you're motivated by play, purpose, and potential, you're going to be much more productive and much more adaptable. So again, being able to change. And so one of the um, ways that I tied that together in that chapter in the book is to put it together with a couple of my other passions. One was the Children's Museum here in the town where I live. I was on the board of directors for about five years there, and I interviewed the executive director about the power of play, something she's talked about forever. And she said that we don't have a word in the English language for someone who experiences the kind of play that a five-year-old would at a water table at the Children's Museum, right? Trying to test, a, you know, does this ball float right? Will this, you know, boat sink? All those little things that are bringing joy, but also learning. They're experimenting. And it's about that sense of play and that sense of discovery. And we don't have a word for that at work. We don't have a word for that as an adult. Like, it, you know, play is kind of a pejorative at work, right? Because it means you're not working. It's supposedly the opposite of play. Not true. Once you get to that state of play at work and you're experimenting and you're trying things just to try them, just to see, is this better? I don't know. Let's try it and let's learn from it. And that sense of discovery um, helps, I think, get people over the hump of, I don't like change. And instead, it's like, it's temporary. We're not talking about a huge, you know, structural yeah. foundational shift here. We're talking about a pilot project. We're talking about an experiment. We're in the sandbox. You know, there's lots of business terms for it, but it's the, the best way to uh, get people who don't like change to at least take a step forward is to shrink the change to as small as possible, which is something obviously from the famous Heath Brothers book, Switch. Yeah. So lowering the stakes of the change is, is part of the way I'm hearing what you're saying. Um, if, if all we ever do are these big, huge cross-organizational, you know, implementations of whatever, you know, sometimes those things are necessary. But if, if that's the only way we frame change, then people, you know, understandably become a little skeptical and resistant to things, especially if they have experience where these big change initiatives fail. Um, but lower the stakes, 
make it just more commonplace. And I like how you talk about it in terms of experimentation and iteration. So you're just constantly learning, constantly iterating, constantly experimenting. And if we can approach it that way, then, you know, we don't need to feel stuck ever. And we don't need to feel afraid of a change that might fail and make us look bad. Because I think that's another reason why people often uh, are really skeptical or hesitant towards change is, is they're comfortable with where they're at. They're worried about what this means for their job, how they're going to be perceived, what their new kind of environment will be like. Um, and if we can just create a culture where it's just continual iteration, then, then that's just part of, of the makeup of the day-to-day -day mindset of, of the people we work with. So I think that's, that's excellent. Uh, something else, it kind of ties into this, but I, I'm also curious about your thoughts around trust and building and sustaining trust uh, within organizations and teams. Um, from my perspective, trust is one of those foundational elements that we need to really focus on as leaders. And it seems like that needs to be there almost before anything else that we can do that's going to be meaningful uh, in our organizations, including small, medium, or large-scale changes. Um, how do you approach trust development and sustainability when you're talking with clients or, for example, when you're interviewing people for your book? One of the key takeaways from interviewing all the people that I did, and they came from all different kinds of industries and different kinds of jobs from, you know, small business owners to working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to the SEC. So uh, a really broad array of backgrounds and perspectives. But the, the one thing that stood out to me was when we talk about trust is you get there through difficult conversations, through not turning away from conflict, but turning towards conflict, because conflict is simply just information and handled well, conflict leads to growth. And the way we have these difficult conversations uh, matters, right? It's often not what you say, but it's how you say it. You can have a difficult conversation without anybody getting hurt, without anybody getting upset, and you will learn and you will come together. And so one of the stories I wrote about in the book was uh, in the summer of 2020, certainly when the Black Lives Matter uh, protests were raging across America, the news organizations that I was working with, uh, you know, were obviously dealing with a lot of emotions around um, you know, social justice issues, and especially for people who happen to be Black and who were feeling like in the crosshairs of all of this, you know, huge upheaval in society. And so we had to have some difficult conversations about racism. We had some difficult conversations about, you know, pre presenting the news and the way it was being presented. And man, watching those conversations happen, even on a Zoom from 3,000 miles away, was powerful. And you just had, you could feel how much more trust these teams were building as they were having these difficult conversations, letting their guard down, getting to know one another. Um, and that's another thing that I have another client um, TV station that started doing was just having these monthly get to know you kinds of situations where an employee will literally do kind of a show and tell on their life and talk about some of the challenges they've taken on. And wow, again, just that bonding and that people are able to be seen for who they are and where they come from and what they bring to the table. And it, it just builds so much trust. So the bottom line is you have to be intentional about this. You can't just expect trust to happen um, and you have to make it okay to have difficult conversations. You have to really prioritize psychological safety so that people feel 
they can speak up and they can challenge ideas even from their boss or their boss's boss and be able to say, let's have a conversation about this. Cause that's all it is. It's not, nobody's, yeah. you know, personally attacking anybody. We're just trying to do the best we can for the team and the mission and the goal that we set. So uh, it's just something that has to be prioritized and, and has to be, you have to put energy into it if you're hoping to build it. Yeah. And building trust on the vulnerability, like you mentioned, ultimately you can develop uh, interpersonal um, connectedness and mutual accountability and that trust that will then allow you to approach change in a more healthy way that will allow you to do all the many other things that we often talk about, you know, in terms of, of what makes a great organizational leader or, or for great success in life and in work. Um, it, it all starts with, with those interpersonal relationships and trust. Well, Mark, it has been a pleasure. I know at the time I need to let you go here in just a minute, um, but this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we close, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you and find out more about your work, uh, your team, your books, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Yeah, my website's at butterfly-impact.com. My book, The Butterfly Impact, is available on Amazon. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter if you want to reach out on social media. And look forward to hearing from anyone. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. It has been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, to get connected, find out more about what Mark and his team can do for you. Check out his books. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.
check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.